A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Heather Berlin. The story was recorded in December 2012 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the event was Science and Religion. So I was a child born into conflict. My parents got divorced when I was just one year old, and it, end, it, it, it escalated into a really long custody battle that lasted for about five years. And in the end, it became a precedent case in New York. My father got custody. But in the aftermath of all of this, although my parents were still in my life, my grandmother, my father's mother, became my primary caregiver. And she was this amazing, amazing woman. She was wise, grounded, stable. She was actually one of the first female contractors in New York. She would build and restore homes for people who had low incomes. And she used to take me on the construction sites and I'd see her supervising all these sort of gritty construction workers and she was just tough and strong and a real role model. But even in her 60s, she felt the need to warn me that she wasn't always gonna be around. And you know, she said, look, I'm here now, let's enjoy our time together, but I don't want you to cry when I'm gone. And uh, she used to sing this song to me, you know, enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. And I thought, <laughs> okay, wow. So for a kid, I mean, that just you know, gave me a sense of this fear of death. And so as a child, I remember I used to sneak into her room at night and just check and make sure that she was still breathing. Um, you know, because I thought at any moment she could go and then I'd be alone in the world and this was just a huge fear for me. So this sort of makes sense that why at the age of five I started contemplating my own mortality. Uh, <laughs> and there I was, I remember this one night I was laying in bed and I was just sort of, I couldn't sleep, I was five years old and I was staring into the darkness and I just finally had the sense of my own mortality. I realized I wasn't gonna be here one day. And it produced such a huge amount of anxiety and I thought, well, how can I, how, how can I make this feeling go away? Oh, I know, maybe even if I'm dead, I can just still keep my thoughts. So if I can just still just think to myself, I can preserve this one little slice of consciousness and then I can cheat death. So that was my plan. So I woke up the next day and, well, I didn't really didn't sleep actually all night. The next morning I went to my father who's a physician and I said, dad, where do my thoughts come from? And can I keep them when I die? Typical questions of a five-year-old. And he said, well, they come from your brain. And I said, okay, great, so how? Because I wanna figure out how to keep them. And he said, well, um, I'm not quite sure how, but if you wanna understand the material basis of consciousness, there's only one profession you can go into. You need to become a psychiatrist. So I said, okay, that's it, that's my mission. I'm gonna become a psychiatrist. So fast forward about 15 years later, and I get my acceptance to medical school. And everyone's saying, well done, that's great, congratulations. But I'm sat there thinking, do I really wanna spend the next four years of my life studying infectious diseases and the digestive system and memorizing every bone in the body? And that's really boring. So I said, forget this, I'm good. I deferred. And instead I went and did research in the Department of Anesthesiology. And there I could actually see firsthand 
people going under, you know, and coming back up again. And I was taking measurements. I was measuring the dosage and the time and when they would come back into consciousness. And the whole time I was wondering, you know, where did they go when they were put under? And how did they come back? And this kept harking back to my fear of death. You know, I associated any kind of unconsciousness, whether it be deep sleep or going anesthesia, under anesthesia with, with death. And I really wanted to res resolve this, this, this fear. And the answers that I were looking for, I couldn't find in the operating room. So the neurosurgeons, they treated the brain like it was a black box. You know, you can turn it off, work on it, turn it back on again. And they weren't asking these deeper, more philosophical questions that I was interested in. And psychiatry didn't seem to have the answers either. I mean, they were just interested in problems and how to fix them, you know, how to treat psychiatric illness, usually via drugs. But they weren't interested in these deeper philosophical questions. So I said, you know what, forget this. I'm gonna go instead for a PhD in Oxford and study cognitive neuroscientists. And I'm gonna study the relationship between the human brain and mind, just only that, for years. And I'm gonna work with the most prestigious experts in the world. So that's what I did. And this whole time, my grandmother was supporting me, both in terms materially, I mean, she paid my way through school, and just being there for me, for whatever I needed. If I would call her for advice, if I was having boyfriend troubles, she'd always chime in and you know, give me her unvarnished opinion of my current boyfriend. Um, when I'd get nervous and to give a big lecture in front of these very prominent professors, she'd say, oh, you know, they all take a shit like you and me, it doesn't matter, you'll be fine. <laughs> so you know, she would always tell me what I needed to hear to help me, to help me get by. At the same time, you know, while I was in Oxford, you know, this, the, the halls of academia and, and this sacred place, but I kept expressing my desire to understand the neural basis of consciousness, and these professors just said, oh, please, they, they laughed at me. You can't study consciousness unless you've already become a well-established researcher in a very practical, pragmatic field, and until then, or perhaps when you retire, then maybe you can just contemplate these unanswerable questions. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm within these constructs. I'm gonna have to try to do something that I can at least get close enough to studying consciousness, but that will be accepted to these funding organizations and to my supervisors. So I decided to study the neural basis of impulsive and compulsive behaviors. And it, that sort of became my mission. And I looked at people who had pathological gambling disorders and people with obsessive compulsive disorders, people who seemed to be locked into these self-destructive behaviors. And the more I looked at the brain, the more I saw that actually they only differed from you and I or from healthy people in very subtle ways, which made me start to think, you know, what does free will really mean? And how much control do we have? And are we all sort of addicts in our own subtle way? So. After a few years of intensive study with my PhD in hand, I came back to New York City because where else could I find a dense population of impulsive and compulsive people to study? <laughs> so here I was back in the city um, and then back to my grandmother and she was starting to become ill. She was 89 at this point and she needed triple bypass heart surgery. So the chances were slim that she would survive this at 89 with triple bypass heart surgery. So I was there for, with her the night before the operation and in the hospital, and they came in and they asked her, do you want a rabbi or a chaplain to sort of you know, give you some solace the night before the surgery? And to my complete shock, she said no. Uh, I was never religious in life, and why would I be now? And this really, I, I couldn't understand this because she taught me my prayers, you know, I was raised culturally Jewish, but not really religious. 
And she always said, you know, you need to marry a nice Jewish boy and all the rest of it. So I thought, why would she not want to seek consolation in religion? And it really, it really stuck with me. Luckily, she survived. And she went on to live another seven rich years of life. Until this past June, June 25th of this year, where my worst fear finally came true and my grandmother passed away. And to me, that was the end of life itself. Um, I didn't think I'd be able to go on, but the rigors of my career were calling and I actually was scheduled to give a talk on BBC World Service the next day. And I was going to give a talk on the science of selfishness or selflessness. And they had actually asked me to do a piece, a 60-second idea to improve the world. And my idea had been to initiate and adopt an elder program. And now this took on a whole new significance for me. But I just didn't know if I could get through the radio show without breaking down. So I called the producer and I, s I explained what happened. And I said, well, look, can I dedicate this 60-second idea to improve the world to my grandmother? And she said, yes, I could. And because she said yes, I thought, that's it. I have to muster up the strength to go on the air and do this. So in less than 24 hours of my grandmother's death, there I was on the BBC World Service being broadcast to about 25 million people around the world talking about my grandmother. And the whole time I was thinking, can she hear me? Could she know this gesture? Could she know how much I missed her? And I was back to this five-year-old girl again asking the question, you know, could our thoughts survive death? And of course, as a scientist, I know that there's no evidence to support this. There's no such thing as disembodied consciousness. But as a human being, I feel, I feel comfort in maybe believing that perhaps she could hear me. Um, you know, I, I, in the house where we used to share together and sometimes I talk to her and I think maybe she can hear me. And just the other night, I was talking to a friend about her and the lights flickered. And I thought, oh wow, maybe that's her chiming in. And you know, I have this logical scientific brain that tells me of course there must be a logical explanation for that. But the human side of me feels like, why can't I believe that maybe that could possibly be she could hear me and give me some comfort. And so through science, I started to try to figure out a way to cheat death. But what I really found in my scientific life is that there are all these unanswered questions. We still don't understand the neural basis of consciousness. We're making amazing breakthroughs, but we really don't know, and we might never know. And we're given this brief moment in time to be conscious, you know, where these neurons are firing in our brain between these two eternities of darkness. Like Carl Sagan said, you know, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. And this is miraculous and awe-inspiring and it gives me constant wonder. But I, so I know via science, perhaps we cannot survive our death. And yet, as a person, I feel, why can't I believe a little bit of something to give me some comfort? And this is what skeptics of religion would call compartmentalization. And if you want to put a label on it, fine. And what I want to say is that compartmentalizing isn't always such a bad thing. I mean, yes, it can be bad if the compartment contains things like bigotry or tendencies towards violence or you know, dangerous superstitions, but if this compartment contains something as harmless as me believing that my grandmother might be able to hear me when I talk to her, I don't feel the need to slam the lid shut on that compartment just yet. Thank you. That was Heather Berlin. 
Heather is a cognitive neuroscientist and assistant professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. She is also a presenter on the new International Discovery Channel series, Superhuman Showdown, and a commentator on the upcoming Discovery Channel series, Ed Stafford, Naked and Marooned. She has also appeared on The Forum, on BBC World Service, BBC Radio 4, and StarTalk Radio. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have our magazine, archives of the podcast, and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, Josh McCall, and Raffaella Benin. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show, and to my grandmother for also being amazing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>